Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Okay, welcome back to our next installment of Genesis 12 through 50. Looking forward to our conversation today as we begin talking about the life story of Jacob. Some people love him, some people hate him. If you get to know him, you probably won't be in between. So let me pray, and then we'll talk a bit, and we'll jump in. Father God, we're grateful for the chance to study your word once again. As always, we come with readiness to hear. We hope that's true of us. We want to hear with our heads and our minds. We also pray that you help us to hear with our lives, our hands, our feet. And uh, help us to grasp some truth in this, whether it's a promise we are to grasp and hold on to tightly, or whether it's a truth we are to believe or re-believe, whether it's um, uh, an action that you're calling us to take, whatever it may be, we pray that you would make that clear enough for us to know a little bit about what you want, and help us to have enough faith to make up for the parts we don't fully understand. So we pray that you would bless us, as always, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, just uh, way, by way of reminder, next week is spring break, so we won't be gathering for spring break. Enjoy your week off doing whatever it is you're doing. Hopefully, it's relatively fun. Then we have a couple more meetings on the other side. We've got actually, I believe, if I'm counting right, five uh, gatherings left. We're going to spend two on Jacob, the life story of Jacob, chapters 27 through 36. We're going to start tonight by looking at a few of those chapters, and then we're going to pick up on the other side of the break, look at the rest of Jacob's story. And uh, then we're going to spend two weeks looking at Joseph's story, which starts, um, well, kind of starts in 38, 39, starts in 39, but we'll talk about 38 with it. And then we'll go on through the rest of the book. So we'll wrap up our study of Genesis in those weeks, and then we'll have one final Q&A night. So I'm looking forward to finishing out the time with you. And I'm going to be, um, given that we're looking through many chapters at one time, we're not going to read all of the text. I love to do that. I'm sure you love to do too. I hope you love to do it too together. Uh, we're not going to have time to do all of that. So let me once again encourage you to make Genesis a part of your uh, Bible reading diet. Whether that you have a daily reading habit, that'd be great. If you do incorporate Genesis, if, if you don't have a daily Bible reading habit right now, um, I encourage you to start one. But in the meantime, um, or if you're just at a place where you're going, ah, I don't know if I can do it every day right now for any number of reasons. Cool. Like put a day on the calendar today. By the time I get here, I want to have my life organized in such a way that I can spend 10, 15 minutes a day reading the Bible. Until then, I'd encourage you to read the portions that we're going to be covering before we gather, and then we'll summarize them together. Also, we're going to continue to, or maybe even more so, try to bring our focus as we talk through these stories on not only understanding Genesis in its own world, in its own context, but what are some truths about God that we can pull from this, and then what are some lessons about life with God that we can pull from this? So that will be our point of focus. A couple of questions that I want to ask just to get us started and prepared for some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, first question, I'm going to word it a little differently than what's on there, so you can look at the particular, on your note sheet, you can look at those a little bit later if you want to. The question I'd like for you to think about is, was there a season of your life when you were thinking about God most? Like it was just... More often than not, or more often than normal, God was in, in the front of your mind. And as you think about that, let me talk about why I think that's a valuable question. You know, the greatest commandment, Jesus says, confirming the Old Testament, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love God, and then out of love for God flows this love for people. And I think I believe, not I think I believe, I believe deeply that God is not hard to love if we're thinking truly about him. 
It's like, how do you enjoy the taste of a chocolate chip cookie? You put it in your mouth. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you enjoy the beauty of a rose? You look at it. You smell it. And if we're, if we're thinking about God rightly and regularly, I think actually we'll find that it may be hard to love him because we live in a broken world and a lot of things go wrong, but he himself is not hard to love. And then life begins to, to I don't know about fall into place, but come together. So when in your life have, has thinking about God come most easy for you? And what I'd like to ask if you've got that season in your mind is, why, why did it happen more than, than other times? Rather than say, what are some things you could do? This is what's on your sheet. Did you think more about God this week than the last week? And um, either way, like, what are some practical ways that you can, uh, you know, find ways to think about God? I think it's a great question. But until we're convinced that it's worthwhile, um, that's just going to feel like a guilt-producing question, and I don't want to produce guilt. So in, in, when you think of I think I've given you enough time to think it through. I'm kind of filibustering a little bit so that you can think. So... Once again, the question, Diane, I'm going to start with you. You're closer today, which means you probably want to talk. You're okay talking. You talk from back there sometimes, but I can see your face now. Has there been a season in your life when, if you look back, you think, yeah, like God was just on my mind more in that season? Um, oh, that's awesome. I was going, Diana, you saw that? That makes sense, Dan, Diana. Okay, we're going to go, both of you. This is awesome. No, perfect line. She wants you to go first. All right. Okay. Uh, one, but the other, uh, the one I thought of first, uh, was actually right around the time where Karen and I got married. Hmm. Okay. Why do you think that? Well, uh, it was something that we, I really thought a lot about God and what he had in mind for okay. uh, my life and our lives together. Yeah. And, uh, it was you know, one of the most intimate times that I was going to be with uh, him mm-hmm. as well as with her. Yeah. That makes great sense. Um, so I'll repeat it again for the sake of the microphone. When you got married was a season when you were thinking about God the most. That seasons of transition, especially relationship transition, getting married, having children, you know, maybe even on the, on the you know, grief side of things, going through divorce, a loss, those kinds of things. When, we're, when, when our life is changing, we tend to naturally give them a bit more attention. Okay. Now, Diana, you're not off the hook. What about you? Wow. And all the while I knew God didn't do that yeah. to me. But he was walking with me and there would be things that I would do that he would share with others or things I would mm-hmm. never have been able to do had he not walked with me through that journey. Gosh, okay. Yeah. So a month before he was born, you say, they told you he won't be alive. And that was a season in your life when you, you were thinking about God. You were feeling his presence. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Strange that she said that because I was going to say when I was pregnant. When you were pregnant. Okay. Uh, you know, that's something you guys don't get to do. What? <laughs> we feel life within us. That yeah. That's the closest I think that I've ever just That miracle. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when Claire was born. Like, Mama got a nine-month head start. It's not fair. I mean, you get to hang out now. Yeah. Okay. I can't imagine. I really can't imagine. Yeah. Life inside. Okay. Uh, good. Well, yes, Talon.
When it's rough, yeah. So when life is good, sometimes it's easy to forget or ignore. But when life gets rough, you mentioned back against, <coughs> back against the. I didn't did that very well, did I? Um, you mentioned back against the wall. And yeah, you look. Yeah, you need him. My own Bible reading has taken me through Second Corinthians. Just finished up you today, and those last few chapters where Paul keeps talking about strength and weakness, strength and weakness, strength and weakness. And I'll tell you, I was sharing with a group of friends of mine recently. I feel like probably in the last few months, the things that Je- the thing that Jesus has been doing in my life is as I've asked him to make me a certain kind of man, a certain kind of strong person and man in him. What I've heard him saying to me and what I've been experiencing is, cool, if you want what you say you want, just know that means I'm going to take you into your weakness. Because that's where you'll understand the nature of true strength. So, okay, good. Good good thoughts to get us going in terms of thinking about God. Next question, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to ask you to say this out loud, but I do want you to think about it. If Jesus walked into the room, it could be this room, it could be your living room, it could be your bathroom for all I know, but he walks in the room where you're, you are, he looks straight in your face and he says, enough already, it's time to make some changes. I want you to picture him walking in the room, enough already, it's time to make some changes. And the question I want you to think about is, what would he be talking about if you had to guess? Jesus comes to you, enough, it's time to make some changes. Do you know what he would probably be thinking about? (laughs) Well, you can keep the whole list to yourself, but I think it's important for for now. But I think it's important to think about. Because we're going to talk tonight about some of the call of Jesus upon our lives, even as we see it demonstrated in some some of the details of the story of Genesis. And I want us to be thinking specifically... Um, what would it be for you? So we may come back to this again just by way of mentioning it. For now, let's go ahead and turn our attention uh, to the text, looking at Jacob's story. We're going to look at part one. I think Jacob's story really can be broken up into three parts. Uh, The two parts are kind of parallel, which hopefully will make sense whenever we look at the second one. And then the third is kind of like tacked on at the end here, a couple of things to learn. So tonight we're just going to look at part one, try not to go too far. We're going to look at um, two truths about God and then two truths about life with God. Uh, So the way we'll do this is just taking one little story at a time, one little scene at a time. We'll look at what happened. We'll talk through it. We'll get a picture of the events. And then we'll ask, okay, that was the story there and then. So what is the truth here and now that we can pull out of this? And then ask how it connects to what may be going on in our own lives. So the story there and then. The first part of the story is Jacob steals Esau's blessing. It is Genesis 26, verse 34 and following. I'll read a couple of portions, but for a lot, a lot of it, I'll just kind of um, talk us through it. So basically, here's what happened. Jacob and Esau, remember, are the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of Abraham, to whom God promised that he would bless him and he would bless others through him. So God gave Abraham this promise, and eventually he gave him a son, Isaac. 
so that this promise would continue with him. Then Isaac finds Rebekah, gets married. They're having trouble having kids, but they pray to God. God opens her womb. They have twins, Jacob and Esau. Even in the womb, Rachel feels something is off, something is going on, and so she goes to God and says, what's happening? And he says, yes, the, basically the two children in your room are comp- competing and fighting against one another. It will always be like that. And the, the, the older will actually serve the younger. The younger of the two will be the one who carries forward my plan. So that's kind of preview leading us up to this point. And then we come to this moment where Jacob steals Esau's blessing. It's not the first time he's done something like this to Esau. One time Esau came in from hunting and he was hungry. And he was like, give me some food. And Jacob was like, I'll give you some food if you give me your, give me your birthright. You give me the sort of rights of being the firstborn. And Esau was like, well, I'm hungry, so fine. So they had this kind of back and forth. Here you see another one. The story starts with this little detail that will become relevant as we go on. Esau himself marries foreign wives. As you look in there, 26, 34, talks about how Esau married wives from all over and they became a source of grief to his mother and his father. Well, meanwhile, Isaac is getting older and he recognizes that death is near. He recognizes that the time for him to pass is coming close. He's not doing too well physically. Seems from the story that he's all but lost his eyesight. If he can see it all, it's only barely. And so he realizes it's time for me to move forward. And so he calls his son Esau, who was his favorite. Jacob was the mama's boy. Esau was the daddy's boy. He called in Esau, grown man, and he says, I want you to go and hunt some some game and prepare some food and bring it to me that I might offer you my blessing. Now, before we move any further, you need to understand that the blessing is a big deal. It's not like, you know, it's, it's, if, you're, if you've ever read this story before, maybe you're thinking, gosh, like, what's the deal with the blessing being so official? Like, once he blesses one, he can't bless the other? How does this work? It's not just like, hey, I hope you, I hope you have a great day. That kind of well-wishing. If you think about the fact that this is a world where there are no notaries, all right? There's no documents where you can just go write up a document and then have it notarized and it becomes an official contract of sorts. So what you, you do that in some cases, but there were certain forms of speech that carried official authority, kind of like even in our world. I say when I'm you know, marrying a couple, uh, officiating a ceremony, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And with those words, they're married. So then I fill out the certificate and I mail it off, but it doesn't get there for three days and they're not waiting three days till they act like married people, if you know what I mean. Because we recognize that the words carry some sort of official weight that changes the nature of this relationship. So the blessing is an official kind of thing. Isaac is saying, let me give you my official blessing and pass on to you what was given to me by God through my father Abraham. So he says, Esau, go hunt me some game, bring it back, bring me some food, I'll give you a blessing. Meanwhile, Rebecca is listening in on the other side of the door and she hears this conversation and she calls Jacob and she says, okay, I heard your father say to your brother, go hunt some game and I'll give you a blessing. So here's what I want you to do. Go get me a couple of goats from out in the field. I'm gonna cook them up. You're gonna take them to him. You're gonna pretend like you're Esau so you'll get the blessing instead. Now, it's hard to know who's worse here. It's hard to know, is Isaac being bad? Is Rebecca being bad? Because on the one hand, Isaac, he should know by now that God himself said the younger one is the one who is going to be the dominant one. Jacob is the one who is going to be the leader. Esau is not. So it could be that his physical blindness is paralleled by his spiritual blindness and that he's trying to disobey God and Rebecca's doing the right thing. 
Or it could be that Isaac doesn't know about the blessing or doesn't, isn't thinking about it or doesn't know about the prophecy rather. And so he's just trying to bless his son. And Rebecca's being the sneaky one, lying and conniving. It's really hard to know. For his part, all Isaac cares about is whether or not it's going to work. <laughs> he says, I don't know if it's going to work, mama. I mean, come on. Like we all know, homeboy's hairy. I'm not. He literally says this. My brother is very hairy and I am not. I'm smooth skinned. So this isn't going to work. And so what she says is, okay, I'll tell you what, go take the goat skins that, that, that I just prepared. And she takes those goat skins from the animals that she's cooked this food with. And she covers his arms and the back of his neck with them so that he'll feel, I mean, you think goat skin, Esau must've been really hairy. <laughs> Indeed he was, he was named Esau because in part it means hairy. So he, uh, he says, we're going to work it out. It's going to be fine. And it works. Esau is out hunting. Isaac comes and, I mean, excuse me, Jacob comes and he presents him with this food. And Isaac says, are you sure this is my son Esau? And Jacob says, yes, indeed it is. Now, and I mean, it doesn't sound like Esau. Lean in, let me, let me feel you. He reaches out and he touches the back of his neck, touches his arms, feels that hair and says, wow, the voice is the voice of Jacob's, but the body is the bodies of Esau. And so then he eats this food that Jacob has prepared for him, and then he offers him a blessing. Let's pick it up and read a little bit of it there, starting in verse 27, I believe. So Genesis chapter 26, verse, excuse me, chapter 27, verse 27. So he went to him and kissed him. This is son to father. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, and this is it too, he's wearing Esau's clothes. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Sound familiar? Isaac is taking the words of the promise to Abraham. May those who curse you be cursed. May those who bless you be blessed. These words that were transferred to Isaac. And he is transferring them to his younger son, Jacob. He offers him the blessing. It works. And then you could probably guess what happens next if you don't already know. Esau comes back with the game. It takes a while to hunt. I forgot to mention this detail. I kind of think this is funny. When Isaac asked Jacob, how did you return so quickly? Jacob's like, oh, the Lord helped me. (laughs) God helped me shoot the bow and arrow sharply. I mean, this is not a hunter. So you picture me trying to talk about hunting, you know, it's just not convincing. And yet the food's there. So what are you going to do? So then eventually Esau does come back and he comes to his father and he prepares the food and he says, here's the blessing. And, and Isaac says, what? You're, this is, you're Esau? Like what, what has happened? And literally it says, they tremble and quake with anger and they're angry with this. And, and Esau says, well, can't you bless me too? And Isaac says, no, it's already been done. So let me read to you what the conversation looks like between the two of them. Verse 35. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Means trickster. This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, I've made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants. And I've sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. 
His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off from your neck. Verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob. I bet he did. Because of the blessing his father had given him, he said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob and take what is mine. This is quite a story. God has promised ahead of time that Jacob will indeed be the leader. The older will serve the younger. And now we see how God's promise, how God's prophecy over these two boys plays out in real time through the decisions, some of which seem somewhat like immoral, at the very least questionable. Like no one seems to be doing awesome here. And yet through their bumbling and stumbling attempts to do what they thought was the right thing, God's plan moves forward. So here's the truth that I want to pull out of this story and hold up for our thinking. And it is the truth that God's sovereignty integrates our free decisions into his perfect plan. We say that God is sovereign. I want to talk a bit about about what that means. God is sovereign. And here the point that I want to make once more is that in his sovereignty, what it means to say that God is sovereign is that God integrates. I like this word. Brings together. Like he integrates, brings into, from in some way like outside of, integrates our freely chosen decisions into his perfect plan. Let's reflect a little bit together on what it means to say that God is sovereign. I want to ask a few questions. What is God's sovereignty? Secondly, does this mean that God micromanages everything, that, every little thing that happens? And thirdly, what does this mean for us today? So a couple things on each of these. What is God's sovereignty? had an opportunity to preach uh, and teach on sovereignty not too long ago and uh, study some of the scriptural witness to this doctrine. Uh, spending time is specifically in Daniel, which is where you see a lot of God's sovereignty. But what I'm noticing in studying Genesis is that you don't have the word sovereign as often mentioned, but you have the same idea consistently upheld. Let me give you a couple of ways of thinking about sovereignty. I'll give you my sort of five-word description of what God's sovereignty means, and then I'll break it down a little bit from there. I think to say that God is sovereign is to say uh, this, only God rules the world. Five words, only God rules the world. That's what I think, and in a nutshell, sovereignty is about. So when we say sovereign in our context, not talking about God, we don't really do it much in our country because we don't have a monarchy. But if you think about a monarchy, kings and queens, then to speak of the sovereign is to speak of a political leader. So in, in the sense, sovereignty is a word that arises out of the realm of politics. And the one who is sovereign is the one who exercises power, the one who rules over something. And what we're saying is that God is sovereign. He rules over the world. And not just that God rules over the world, but that only God rules over the world. He is one of the words for sovereign in the Old Testament means he is the highest of the high ones. He is at the very top of the food chain or the ladder or whatever you want to say. His is the biggest throne. Only God rules the world. This is the idea. 
let me bring this down a little bit to the context of normal life. What I think this means is that because of God's, I'll give you two phrases to build this out. Uh, God's, um, let me put it this way, God's plans will be successful because his power is superior. So God chooses what he wants to happen and then it will happen. It will successfully take place because his power is such that he cannot be stopped. His purposes can't be thwarted. His mission cannot be, um, cannot be put to rest. He can't be stopped. So God has superior power and because of his superior power, his plans will be successful. And we think about this in other contexts. You look at certain people and you just know they're going to win. So it's March Madness, right? This week the, uh, the tournament starts. How many of you guys filled out a bracket? All right, okay. Not a lot, but a few. Um, who do you got winning? Did you say you filled out a bracket? Who do you got winning? Kansas. Okay, how many of you have Kansas winning? How many of you always have Kansas winning? <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. I see how it is. Okay, so, we, we, but most of us, I would imagine all of us who have or will fill out a bracket... If you don't know what the NCAA tournament even is, then this will be somewhat confusing, but you can get the idea. The first round, there are four games that pit a one seed against a 16 seed. And we will all choose the one seed over the 16 seed because we just know they're just better. They're going to win the game. To my knowledge, a 16 seed has never beaten a one seed in the the NCAA tournament. I don't think it's ever happened. Three's beaten 14. I think maybe once a two beat a 15. Never has a one beat a 16. 16 beat a one. 15 beat a two. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we all pick the one seed because you get it like, let me just make it even more obvious. If you were to take uh, the San San Antonio Spurs and have a basketball game between the Spurs, who to my knowledge currently have, or at least are tied for, the best record in the league, and play them against the Web City, high school, Web City Cardinals high school basketball team or the Carl Junction Bulldogs or the Joplin Eagles basketball teams. It's not going to be close. There's no, we know who's going to win. The Spurs are going to execute a plan successfully because they have superior abilities in this context of basketball playing. So in that sense, what it means to say that God is sovereign is to back out as far as you can and look at the entire universe and say that there's nothing in the entire universe that is so strong that it could stop God from ultimately getting what he wants. That's what it means to say that God is sovereign. That, I think, is some of what you see even in this story, that God gets what he wants, even if it happens through some pretty strange things. God, Like Isaac, in this sense, whether he knew it or not, was trying to get in the way of God getting what God said he wanted, which is that Jacob is the one who leads. And God gets what he wants because Isaac can't hold a candle to him. Neither can anybody else in the whole universe. So that's what it means to say that God is sovereign. And yet that immediately raises the second question. So if God's so powerful that he always gets what he wants, does that mean that he always gets what he wants in every little thing? Does that mean that God micromanages our world? So that really none of our decisions are actually free. They just feel free. But in the end, he's kind of manipulating the whole thing. I think that the Bible offers an answer to this question. And I think that that question is no. I don't think you see evidence in this story that God was making Isaac promise Esau a blessing. Or that God made, like he forced Rebekah to deceive. He forced Jacob to follow along. I don't see evidence in this story at all. And I don't want to overread this story. 
I don't want to act like the whole purpose of this story is to, is to negate this other idea of God's sovereignty. But I do think that this story is a true depiction of the way God works in the world. Where he allows there to be freely chosen decisions, but he actually works through those decisions to bring about his good purposes. He doesn't have to. This to me is even, sometimes I'll talk to my friends who believe in a view of God's sovereignty that says that God determines all things and they'll say, well, our belief in God's sovereignty is just stronger than yours. And I'll raise my hand and try to politely and gently say, "Um, no, it's not. I actually think the opposite is the case. I think it's more impressive and it's a higher view of sovereignty to say that God could actually give you the freedom to choose for or against him. And yet still, even though you have the freedom to choose for or against him, he can arrange things such that his ultimate purposes will be fulfilled. Is that not more impressive? I think it is. But even if it was not more impressive to you, I think it's more biblical. So let me give you the main verse that I think there's a lot of verses in this respect and I don't want to be heavy handed. Uh, There would be people who, believe the Bible just as much as I do, love Jesus every bit as much as I do, have studied things every bit as much as I have, if not more, and who would say that I'm thinking about this the wrong way. So let me just state that. But I want to point you to what I consider to be one of the most important verses with respect to this idea, and it's Romans 8.28, where it says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. He works all things together. So I want you to notice what this verse doesn't say. I don't, see, I don't hear this verse saying, he causes all things. I don't hear it saying that. I don't see that depicted in scripture. He does sometimes cause some things, no question. So if somebody were to say, well, look here, he caused this this time. Okay. Just because he causes one thing one time or 10 things 10 times doesn't mean that he causes a thousand things a thousand times. And I think the general witness of scripture is not that he causes all things. It's that he causes them to work together for the good of those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. That I think is the biblical truth when it comes to God's sovereignty. Not that he makes everything happen that happens, but that even though things happen that he would not like to see happen, that in his perfect world would never be. We read in scripture that God wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth and so be saved. We also read in scripture that not everybody will. So God doesn't always get what he wants in this strict sense, but God's ultimate purposes will be accomplished. All things will work together for the good of those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. I think the picture here is less like a, less like a marionette. You know what a marionette is, right? Where the, I don't know if it's like marionettist. I don't know what the leader this is, that the manipulator is called. What's it called? Puppeteer. puppeteer. The puppeteer has this like thing and he's moving it around and there's strings attached to the arms and legs of the puppet. And the puppet's dancing. But the puppet isn't actually choosing to do anything, right? No, the puppeteer is the one manipulator. Any of you good at this? Any of you ever actually done this? That'd be awesome if we, you have? Dan, that's amazing. Are you serious? Do you have a puppet? You should buy a puppet. Someone should buy him a puppet and he can make it dance for us. So this is, in this case, Dan is controlling every movement of the puppet. I think with God, it's more like a picture of a high quality dance instructor who has taught the various players what to do and guides them in the process and in the end takes you to a point where the show will be a success. But it's not because she or he is manipulating every last move. It's not because they've connected programmatic, you know, like robots to people's bodies and she can hit a button and it makes them, you know, pirouette or whatever it may be. No, like these people are choosing with their own strength to do these things that have been led by the instructor. That's the picture of God's sovereignty. So I think you guys get the point. Let me say a little bit about what this means today. Uh, two things. First one has a couple of sub points. First thing that it means is is if God is sovereign, then who is not? Everybody do this with your hand. Raise, raise your hand like this. Pull your thumb in like this. 
then pull the three fingers on the outside over the thumb, then turn your hand like this, and then lower the pointer finger. Yeah. If God is sovereign, then that person is not. Put simply, you're not in control. You're not in control. Now, this comes across to us in two different ways. For some of us, you need to hear this as, hey, the pressure's off. You don't have to make sure everything turns out right. That's not on you. Yeah, you no doubt. Praise the Lord indeed. That's not on you. Some of you need to be told right now, like you need to walk out of these doors when we're done with a burden lifted because you've not been asked to rule the world. You've not been asked to make sure that everything turns out okay. That's not your job. That's not what has been asked. If you ever have kids that like try to be the parent and you're looking at them going, you don't like, you can relax and be a kid. You don't have to do this. Carry on, go play. It's not upon you. So some of us, this comes to us as the pressure's off. To others, though, it comes to us as a command to step down. Some of us would like to be in control. We don't experience it as a burden. We experience it as a fun opportunity. Well, it's not your job. You can't do it well. And the more you try, the more damage you'll cause. So step down. Let God be God. Trust me, it's better that way. Let God be God. You stop trying to be him. So the first thing that I think this means for us today is you are not in control. If God is sovereign, I am not. And the second thing is, we've talked about this before, but these words never get old. Anything can be redeemed. These are four of the most powerful words I know when put together. Anything can be redeemed. You sometimes hear people say things like everything happens for a reason. I don't like that statement. I don't think it's true. I think people are trying to say something true when they say it. So if you've said it, I think you were trying to say something true. Um, If you were saying that God caused this thing for another reason, then I think you weren't saying something true. (laughs) So don't say that, because I don't think that's true. But I think we're trying to say something true when we say everything happens for a reason, but we're not saying it well, because it makes it sound like, like this particular thing was designed for some other thing. Nope, it's not a thing what the scriptures teach. God sometimes does that, and when he does that, he always sends a prophet to make sure the people know very clearly that he's doing that. Other times, the truth is not everything happens for a reason. The truth is anything can be redeemed. Nothing can happen that God cannot redeem. Nothing can occur into or around you that God cannot somehow, in ways that sometimes seem impossible, somehow weave together for his purposes, for the glory of his own name, and the good of the people around him. Anything can be redeemed. I don't know what you're wrestling with as you come into this room today, um, but you may need to hear that. And I don't know what the people who you rub shoulders with on a daily basis are going through, but they may need to hear that. So don't look at them and say, everything happens for a reason. I've personally been in those situations where the last thing I wanted to do, no offense, is talk to a Christian because I knew they were going to say something that they were trying to help with, but actually it was ultimately going to make things worse. So you just don't even want to go to church sometimes, you know? So make it easier. Just give them a hug and say anything can be redeemed. It's not easy. It's not quick. It's not pain-free. But I think this is the truth that you even see in a strange story like this one, that God sovereignly integrates our free choices, some of which are good, some of which are bad, some of which are neutral but lead to good things, some of which are neutral but lead to bad things. God did integrate all of these free choices in such a way that his purposes continue. Anything can be redeemed. So Jacob steals Esau's blessing. And in this, we see the strange sovereignty of God working itself out in real time. 
Coming back to Genesis, the next story follows on the heels of this one. And it's not hard to understand the connection. Uh, What was Esau thinking when we stopped reading? I'm going to kill him. Yeah, murder. I'm going to take him out. Rebecca knows this. She's a smart gal, as you can see. If you've not picked that up yet, by the way, pick it up because Rebecca is sharp. You may not like her. You might like her. I don't know. Either way, she's sharp. So she sees this and she comes up with a plan. She's really good at that. And her plan is to, she got to get Jacob out of there. And so she comes to uh, Isaac and says, we got to find this kid a wife. And uh, we know it's not going to happen around here. These women, as we've seen from our older son Esau's choices, are only going to be a thorn in our side. They're only going to pull our son away from what God wants for them. So we got to find him a wife. we got to send him away. we got to get him out of there. we got to send him back to the place where you found me. Just like your father sent you away, we got to send him away to go get him a wife. Now, the, the pretense, again, is a legit reason. He does need a wife, and he does need a wife to come from somewhere else because the wives around there weren't, pe- weren't women who believed in God and would support their husband in such a way that they could together follow him. So it's wisdom, but at the same time, she's watching her back, getting him out of there so he didn't get taken away. Isaac agrees with this. He says, yeah, this is, this is a good thing. This is a good idea. And so he sends him away. He renews the blessing and sends him away. And then uh, he's off to find a wife. Now, in the meantime, Esau is kind of has a bumbling. You can read this. Let me read this last verse to you. This is Esau's kind of bumbling attempt. Uh, Where's this? um... Yeah, verse six. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away. So then he went and found another wife. (laughs) He's trying. It's just not working so well. But the main thing here that happens within the story is once more, Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob away to find a wife because he's called to be different than the people who they're surrounded by. Now, we talked about this when Abraham sent Isaac away, but the text says it twice, so we're going to say it twice. The truth that I think we can pull from this here and now is that our holiness matters. It matters so much that it's a repeated theme. It was so important for the descendants of Abraham to have wives who came from families who believed that on two occasions we've now seen the son sent away to find a wife from elsewhere because what was going on around them was not adequate to following and worshiping God well. You catch the connection? Our holiness matters. Now I just want to wrestle with this a little bit more again. I'm reading a book recently. Um, it just started, a friend of mine got it for me a month ago. just started the last couple of days called The Hole in Our Holiness. It's an interesting book. He argues that there's a hole in modern Christianity in our context. And it is that we have become focused on a lot of things, but the passionate pursuit of living a holy life is maybe not necessarily one of them. And there could be any number of reasons why. I think part of why we may fall under this trap is that we define Christianity and like the living of our faith solely in terms of making an impact in other people's lives, which it is about making an impact and serving other people. But if we define it solely about serving in other people's lives, then we don't necessarily have to pay attention to the mess in our own heart and life. So I think we maybe distract ourselves. I think we might also, in our day, have a problem because we tend to value authenticity over holiness. We tend to think, I'm just being real, you know, I'm just being authentic. It's a sin to be inauthentic. It's not necessarily a big deal if you're unholy. I mean, that happens. But to be fake, oh my. 
Now, I'm not saying I want you to be fake, but I'm saying when we say, well, listen, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, and that's that. Well, we're not perfect, but what if that's not that after all? What if we're called to live a, live a holy life? What if there's actually something that is happening in us that should draw us forward in this pursuit of Christ's likeness? What if we're supposed to change in this respect? I don't know where you're at on these things, but I know what the scripture's saying. I mean, let me open up your Bibles. Let's look at a couple of verses together from the New Testament. I mentioned to you that I've just been tracking through 2 Corinthians. The other day, I, uh, I accidentally started reading the previous day's chapter, and I would think it was like intentional. I think God did this to me on purpose because I hadn't really paid attention to the verse that it said. So he was like, yeah, I'll start here again. So 2 Corinthians 7, 1. 2 Corinthians 7 follows a couple of chapters that talk about the greatness of God's gift to us in Jesus, that he's reconciled us even while we were sinful, that he's brought us close. And then after this greatness of the gospel, we read in 7.1, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, promises of God's love and affection and forgiveness, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's the statement it's about. That's not from the Old Testament. That's from the New Testament. Our holiness matters. I can tell you for my part, I've been on a journey in wrestling with grace. Over the last couple of years, probably the main big picture thing that has sharpened in my own understanding of God is just how deep grace flows. Just how much God loves me and you. So much so, so much so, that we're not really understanding how radical grace is until we're tempted to abuse it. I don't think we should abuse it. But if you've never asked the question, so are you telling me that I can just go do whatever I want and you'll still want me to be yours? If you've never even asked that question, you probably haven't quite understood grace. Again, the answer is no, Romans 6.1. But you only ask the question if you understand just how grace deep runs. And so verses like Titus 2, flip over there with me, have become increasingly important to me as I've thought about the connection between grace and now a changed life. Because if you think that all grace does is forgive you, you're not fully understanding what God's grace means. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what grace does in this verse. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace teaches us. So here's the point I want to make on there. I think I put it on your sheet. Yeah, uh, God has been pressing me on this lately. Here's the next statement. Radical grace initiates radical obedience. This is what I've been learning, I think. That God's grace is so powerful that it not only accepts me in all of my messiness, even if I continue to fail, but that it turns me into the kind of person that doesn't have to fail anymore. And it's not just radical grace turns us into a little bit better person. No, radical grace initiates radical holiness. Do you know what radical means? I'm not using it just because it's a cool word. It means, you know, that like radix is the word for root, like a radish is a root. Radix is a Latin word for root. So radical means to the root, all the way. So radical grace, all the way grace, leads to radical obedience, all the way obedience, all the way holiness, all the way transformation. And so I've been thinking, because God won't let me forget, about verses like, uh, well, you know the story of the rich man, rich young ruler in the Gospels, this rich guy that comes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, you know the commandments, keep them. And he's like, I've kept them all since I was a boy. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, 
go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And then the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth, had many properties, had a lot of stuff. And we read this story and we think, well, I mean, that only happened once. So the issue was his heart, not the money, which is true. But let's be honest, we often do this so that we don't have to take seriously the radical demand that this text places on our lives. I sometimes wonder, okay, like I get that it's not money for all of us, but surely, surely there's someone in our congregation who has enough of an issue with money that if Jesus were talking to them, he would say, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And if that wouldn't be any of you in the room, awesome, well done with money. What would it be? Would it be the grasp that you have over your, I don't know, your family, the way in which you approach them? Are you trying to do more or do differently with respect to them than God has called you to? Is it your career? Is it, uh, I don't know, what it, whatever it might be. Like, honestly, so I guess it's whatever you think Jesus would be talking about when he showed up in your room and said, enough already. It's time to make some changes. Whatever that is that you don't want to think about right now, but you can't avoid thinking about, that's your one thing you lack. Go and sell it, get rid of it, handle it, deal with it. If it's a reconciliation that you need to pursue with a person who's wronged you in the past or whom you've wronged, go do it. It'll be hard, but it'll be better on the other side. And the thing is, that's what radical grace does. Thing is, I don't have to just tell you, go do it. I already know that even if some of you doesn't want to do it, there's a part of you that does because grace is in you and it's moving you towards holiness. Our holiness matters. Last statement on here, to be different, we must be different. If we're gonna stand out, in the way that we're called to stand out, then we gotta be okay being weird. We just have to learn to be okay being weird. It's okay for people to look at you funny because you don't do what they do, think how they think, operate how they operate, believe how they believe. It's okay for people to look at you and go, for real? Everybody turn your head sideways, for real? You don't have to say for real, but turn your head sideways. It's okay when your behavior elicits taco neck from people because what you're doing is weird. That's going to increasingly be the case. You think marriage is what? You think, you think there's only like one proper context for, for intercourse? For real? You think that it's better? <laughs> you think it's not a good idea to cheat and further your career? Are you serious? Like, what did you think you were getting into when you took this job? Well, whatever you were getting into, you are who you are. And so you're going to do it differently. Whatever that may mean. For, you work hard even when the boss isn't here? Yes, I do. Because I got a bigger boss. So our holiness matters, always has, always will. And if we're gonna be different, we gotta be different. We gotta make the concrete choices to live differently. I think spiritual growth is fairly simple. Think about what is true and ask, what would I do if I really believe this? And if you do that over and over and over, then you will become a person who just naturally obeys on the basis of what is true. Our holiness matters. Sometimes you gotta go away. Not geographically, although that may be true in some cases, but the movement of Jacob from where they were, Canaan, to Paddan Aram, the land where they needed to go. This movement, I think, is representative of our need to, Romans chapter 12 style, not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds such that we might live and think differently and so do God's will. So our holiness matters. Following up on this, we come to one of the coolest stories in the book of Genesis, I think. So this one I want to read. Enough paraphrasing. Genesis chapter eight, uh, chapter 28, excuse me. I think um, starting in verses or in verse... 
We'll start in verse 10, but let me pause because I've just kind of been monologuing for a while. We've talked about God's sovereignty and we've talked about the importance of a call to a holy life. We should be people who prioritize uh, being a godly person. That's an important thing to you if you have received God's grace. Well, questions on either of these things or on what's going on in the text itself. I like that a lot. So you have, did you hear her? God's permissive will. What this means is it's not God's, I can't remember the term for the other half of that. But the idea is that there's, let's just use the words God's perfect will is what God would would want to be. God's permissive will is what God allows to be. So God's perfect will is that Adam and Eve never eat the fruit in the garden. And his perfect will is that you never do either. But his permissive will is he allows this to happen. Is that what you're getting at? And works through that to bring about his ultimate plan. Yes. And this I think you see, you see the difference here in also the ones I mentioned. Is, it's in First Timothy, I think, in Second Peter, where God wants all people to be saved, come to knowledge of the truth. That's his ultimate desire, his perfect will, his ultimate want. But his permissive will is he will permit free choices. And in the end, he will still accomplish his purposes through that. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways to break down God's will, for sure. So since you mentioned that one with respect to God's sovereignty, let me mention another idea with respect to our own holiness. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I want to be holy, but I don't necessarily know what that means in any given situation. So we're talking now not about, uh, about God's will in the sense of what does God want me to do right now. You ever found yourself in those type of times where you're like, I want to do the right thing, I just don't know what it is. Sometimes you just need to study scripture and actually come to an answer. You should know, you just don't yet, because you haven't read it, or you're not paying attention to it, or your heart's hard to it. Sometimes, though, the reason why you're going, I got three options, and I don't know which one God wants me to take, it's because God's looking at you going, I don't really care which one you take. Whichever one you take, I'm going to bless it. Whichever one you take, I care more about who you are than what you do. So take whichever one you want. You know what I mean? Pick a path, go for it. And if you've sought the Lord, and if you've cleansed your heart from sin as much as you're aware of, and if you've you know, prayed and, and in community and through the scriptures looked for his will, you've got a couple of paths in front of you, he may very well just be saying, go for it. So the way one of my teachers years ago drew this for me was that when you said will, for some reason it reminded me of this, in a different sense, the umbrella of God's will. So we'll draw a nice little umbrella here. That there are, that there's a, like a range And that anything within the cover of this umbrella is within God's will. But there are certain things outside that are not. So let's say, for instance, you're a single person. Let's say you're a single person who's interested in getting married and you've got a couple of prospects that you you might want to pursue. Maybe maybe there's some friendships. You're not like close to marriage, but it's like maybe I want to pursue the possibility. I just want to go on a date with some of these people or ask them out. If there's like four people that you're looking at, it may be that God is saying, okay, cool, go for it. Now, I think, for instance, God has said in the scriptures, in 2 Corinthians actually, that if a person is not a believer, then you shouldn't go after them, should pursue them. If you're married to a non-believer, if you yourself are a non-believer married to a Christian, don't worry, they're not supposed to like leave you, you're not supposed to leave a person. But if you're a single person, you shouldn't marry someone who doesn't believe what you, what you believe. Paul, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, you marry whoever you want, as long as they're in the Lord. So if you're looking at these four people, well, this one isn't, isn't a believer. Well, God doesn't want me to go there, so that would be outside the umbrella of God's will. But I'm looking at these other three saying, okay, cool. Uh, I, can, I can make a choice. 
don't know if that helps at all, but I appreciate you. For whatever reason, you jogged my thought on that. So when it comes to holiness, I want to clarify that it's not like God has a blueprint laid out for you. It's just that he wants you to seek his, his face, his ways, his wisdom, and then do what is within his will. Yeah, good. Yes. No, God's will will never require you to sin to achieve that purpose. No, he won't. He never wants you to sin. And yet to come back to her point, in the different sense, now looking at it, it's like we're looking at it from the bottom up and then the top down, looking at it from the top down, even if you do, which is good news because we all have, he still can accomplish his purposes in you. Yes, or through in through you, yeah. Maybe not the same way that he would have had you not. But yeah, he's still good. He's that good. So you can rest in God's sovereignty. Because if you look at your track record and go, well, I mean, I'm doing okay now, but I'm kind of a mess in the past. Okay, welcome to what God does. I mean, this is what the gospel was made for. So, yeah, anything else? Yes. This may sound a little bit funny. All right. I know that your life is so God-centered because that's your uh, occupation also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes I wasn't thinking. It took everything I had to do my job. And I was trying. And I mean, I was trying to be successful in what I did. Mm -hmm. You are successful in what you do, and it entertains God throughout the whole day. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for you than it is for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it's easier for me than it is for you because in a sense, God is, a, you. it seems anyway that God is like a bigger part. My job is more God than yours maybe as a loan officer. Yeah. Um, yeah, at some level, I, I, I feel that. I do, yeah. Um, on the one hand, one of the things that struck me when I was younger and I first got into ministry um, was how much of a life of ministry is not as nearly as God-centered as I would have assumed. That in a lot of ways, um, it becomes about organizing stuff, you know? It becomes about formatting documents and printing letterhead and folding envelopes and putting slideshows together and a lot of those kind of things. In my case, editing grammar, trying to teach people how to write sentences, you know, all these different sort of things. So it's the contrast probably isn't as vast as it might seem. And I say that not to say, oh, it's harder for me. No, I just would say that to say, I have found at times in my own life that I too am going about my days not really giving God much of a thought. But... I think that that's an important, but to your point, it would be easier for me to recenter myself as I read a paper about a passage of scripture than it would be as you read a paper about uh, the granting of a loan. This is where I think it's very important that we understand that all work is spiritual and godly and he is with you in it the same as he is with me in my work. A couple of reasons I think this do you think that Jesus was um, somehow unfaithful for 30 of his 33 years on this earth? No, and yet he spent 30 years building stuff. Three years preaching and teaching, you know what I mean? Um, do you know what the names are of the first people in the Bible who are said to be filled with the Spirit? 
If you do, that'd be awesome because these names are rocking. If any of you are young and you have twins, you should name them after these two guys. Let me ask you this before I tell you who they are. Do you know what they, if you think of, okay, that person was filled with the Spirit and then he, what would you expect to come next? What's that? Sin. Filled the Spirit and then he sinned. What else? What's that? You're getting there. Yes, you jumped ahead, so let's go with what you're saying. Bezalel and Ohaliab are their names, which is why you should have dogs named Bezalel and Ohaliab. That would work. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, they were builders. They built the tabernacle. The first people who were filled with the Spirit, they didn't go out and do something super spiritual, you know? They built stuff. They put materials together and made something. And I think there's something there, that your work was more spiritual than you realized. Always was. Because God, so work precedes the fall. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, cultivate the garden before sin ever entered the picture. Which means that when we work, we're not just doing something that is separated from God. We are actually doing what God put us on the earth to do in our own time and place. So I would say one of the things that you can do, or so you retired still, are you still doing loan officer stuff at all? You're done. No, you're saying no, that's in my... So what you could have done and what you should encourage others to do is just every now and then make yourselves... Oh, this is a perfect lead-in to the last thing I want to say if we, get, if we have time for it. Make yourselves aware of God's presence. So whenever your kids are playing out in the backyard, or grandkids, you guys have grandkids? When you see your grandkids reading the Bible, that's pretty cool, huh? I don't know how big they are, but if you ever see them reading the Bible, would that be like neat and special to you? You'd say, oh... When you see your grandkids like building stuff with Legos, do you sometimes just watch them and enjoy watching them put things together? In that same sense, I think God looks upon me preaching and teaching and experiences the same joy that he experiences when he looks upon you if you're indeed serving people through loan officering. You know? Anything that you're doing to serve people, even if it's not immediately serving them, Maybe you're the person that cuts down the trees that will become the houses or the paper on which people will, in which people will live or on which people will write things to each other. That in itself is a form of service to God by serving people and it is dignified and spiritual. So I'm with you. I'm with you that in some ways mine makes it easier. In some ways, every job that you do is going to have certain opportunities and certain threats. And if you do a job that feels unspiritual, that will take a little bit more discipline at first to make yourself aware of God's presence in that. There's a little tiny book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And by little tiny, I mean little tiny. You could fit in your back pocket. It's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. He was a monk, but he wasn't a very good monk. Um, he was the dishwasher in his, in his uh, monastery. And he made it his goal to be always aware of God's presence. Just as much when he was washing dishes as when he was at, in times of prayer. And this book, just as is he's writing some letters to some friends, just talking about his experience of just trying to maintain an awareness of God's presence. This is an opportunity that's available to all of us. And I say this with good justification because of the last story that we're going to study together. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Here is Jacob's dream at Bethel. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. 
I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over wherever you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So Jacob's dream. The story in some ways speaks for itself. Jacob is making his way along this journey, stops for the night to sleep. I don't know about Jacob's faith at this point. Neither do you because we haven't been told much. I don't know if he believes all that God has said, if he just is trying to like get, do the best he can with what he's got, if he's just trying to win the game, whatever it may be. But this is the place where he meets God. And he realizes that God was there even though he didn't know it. In some translations of the language, it's even more God was in this place and I did not know it. So here's, again, the truth that I want to... Within the story of Genesis, the point is fairly clear. God is telling Jacob... I am indeed going to do for you all that you have heard I will do for you. You're the one through whom I'm going to work. I'll be with you and watch over you. So here's the truth for us here and now. God's presence is not dependent on our awareness. God's presence is not dependent on our awareness. I just want you to think about that for a second. Sometimes you think, oh, God is in this place. Don't you? Sometimes you realize that, huh? Sometimes you don't, huh? Guess what? Like he's here just as much when you didn't realize it as he, as he, as he was when you did. God was in this place. Not that God came to this place as in he was somewhere else, but now he's here. Not that God is now in this place as in like he wasn't before, but he's now showed up but that he was always in this place. He is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was in this place. He's here, always has been. And here's the truth that I want to say to you. Wherever you are, God is here. Let me frame this one with a couple of Claire stories, because why not? They're fun. Not stories so much as things that happen in the context of a, I mean, things kids say to their dads and moms. Um, first one is uh, something that you have heard too, if you have children or loved ones. Um, whenever I leave, I have to go away for a trip for a while. She'll always say before I leave, Daddy, I'll miss you uh, while you're gone. That's what you would expect her to say, right? Daddy, I'll miss you while you're gone. Now, she's saying this because my presence has an effect on her. When I'm in the room, and I'm not a perfect father, so sometimes when I'm in the room, she's like, is he in a good mood or bad mood? But for the most part, when I'm in the room, she feels safer, more loved, more protected, more cared for. That's how I want it to be. So I should be. Well, what's wrong? Sometimes I'm not in the room. Sometimes I got to go, right? Sometimes I got to leave this place and I can't go where I have to go and also stay with her at the same time. So she experiences a lack because I am no longer with her. 
She's not aware of my presence anymore because my presence is not there to be aware of. I'm not there. So let me state an obvious truth. God is not like me. Nor is he like, hey, I'm just kidding. Nor is he like you. He, he doesn't have to choose to be here or there. He never leaves. Now, he may withdraw certain benefits of his presence to teach you lessons. If you are indeed, you know, sinning or making a foolish decision or pushing him away, I don't want to talk to you right now, God. He's not going to force himself upon you, but he's always there. He doesn't have to choose between being here and there. He's not like us in that the blessings of our presence are only available when we're not somewhere else. He's never somewhere else where you are. He's not like us because being in two places at one time is not just a cliche for him about what he can't do. It is the reality of what he always does do. God is always with you. He's here. Let me give you another few verses of scripture that I think speak of these same sorts of things. The technical word, well, I don't know if you like these words or not. I don't even know if I like these words. But have you ever heard the word omnipresent? He's everywhere. everywhere. There is no there to God. There is only here. So we go from here to there. Every place to him is here. Psalm 137, 9 through 11. I uh, didn't print this one on there, but I'll read it to you. Here's what David, while praying, says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Here we find David in the psalm. He's wondering if there's any way that he can sort of avoid God's gaze. He starts this psalm by saying, you know my every thought. And he explores this truth by meditating on the fact of God's ever-presentness. Wherever David goes, he is in God's presence. God, you are where I am. Let me read you another one. Here's one of my favorite ones. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help, that's the phrase I want you to key in on. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. So we won't fear, even when the world's falling apart. Why? Well, there's a therefore there, which means we have a reason why. And the reason why is because God is an ever-present help in trouble. The Hebrew is nimsa ma'od. It means he is exceedingly findable. Ever-present. Right here, help and trouble. So not only in Psalm 139 is God wherever you might be going, he is Psalm 46, wherever you currently are. One more from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I love that question. Do I not fill heaven and earth? A.W. Tozer, talking about Jeremiah 23, says uh, he gives us a little bit of a word picture. He says, God fills heaven and earth just like the ocean fills a bucket, which has been submerged in it a mile down. The bucket is full of the ocean, but the ocean surrounds the bucket in all directions. I like that. Do I not fill heaven and earth, he says. It's not just an Old Testament doctrine either. Acts 17.28 says, we're in him, we live and move and have our being. It's a quote, actually. Paul is the one preaching, but he's preaching in Athens, which is where a bunch of fancy philosophers live. And so he knows if he quotes their poets and philosophers that he'll gain a hearing. And so he quotes one of their poets. This truth is so apparent 
that uh, somebody who didn't even know the God who was revealed in the scriptures came to an understanding. And Paul says, I don't know how this guy got to it. I don't know how right he knew he was, but he got it right. I think the poet's name was, I can't remember if this one is Anaximander or the other one, but some old Greek guy with a funky name. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the one in whom we dwell. We live here. All that God is, God is here. So come back to the absence of a human father. When I'm here, everything that I am is here for her. When I'm in the room, loving, gracious, I hope gentle, uh, strong, everything that I am, I am for her when I am in the room. The problem is I'm not always in the room. With God, that's not the same. He doesn't have the same problem, which means everything that he is, he is right here. So just give me a word that describes God. Love, what else? Truth. Forgiving. Forgiving. What are the attributes of God? What else? Grace, Grace wisdom. What's that? Kindness. Kindness. All that God is. Like every true word that you could think of and every true picture that gives you an accurate sense of who he is and every story that demonstrates the truth of what he's like, every truth, all that God is, God is here. Whether you see it or not. Here's the other Claire story. I think I've told you guys this before, but I like to talk about when I talk about God's presence. Um, whenever she was younger, I mean, she's still young, but whenever she was super younger, uh, we would tell stories about her and she'd be in the room. You know, well, the other day, Claire, da, 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 whatever it may be. And she'd always say, have I told you guys what she used to always do? She would always say, I'm right here. <laughs> like, hello. You're talking about me like I'm not in the room, but I'm in the room. I'm right here. And sometimes I feel like God wants to say the same thing to us when we talk about him and when we don't. Sometimes I think even when we talk about him, now this is the occupational hazard for me, to talk about God as if he's not in the room, to teach the scriptures, forgetting that I'm talking about a person who is literally with us, closer to us than the air we breathe. For, for you, in your context, it was, you're not thinking about me, but I'm right here. Just, just look over and know that I'm here. I want you to keep doing what you're doing. I don't want to disturb you. I just want you to know I'm with you. And I think this is great that you're trying to provide this person with money to get what they need. So whatever you do, wherever you go, all that God is, God is right here. Surely God was in this place and I knew it not. Now you get to know it. So like Jacob, I hope that the skies open up a bit for you as you read this text. I don't know if you'll ever have an experience like his. I've never had an experience like his. But I don't need an experience like his to know that his experience was a unique way of experiencing what is true, whether you experience it that way or not, which is that God is in this place, always, right now, right here. So as Jacob goes along, before he moves any further, God sees fit to teach him a very important lesson. He can go nowhere away from God. I do think we have time to cover the last bit. And given that it's fun and like cool and neat to think about living life in God's presence, and yet the complicated thing is that most of life is just so mundane. I love that we go from this great experience of God to some of the mundane, hard realities of life on the earth, work and family. So let's look at this next story and see if we can't see what happens when Jacob takes this awareness of God's presence back into what we often call the real world. What happens next is basically Jacob finds a wife and starts a family. He shows up in this new region and he connects to his mother, Rebecca's family. 
He's taken in by his uncle Laban, who brings him into his home, and he sees this girl. And man, she was gorgeous. Bible tells us she's beautiful. Rachel, gorgeous. And he says, I want to marry that woman. She had an older sister, Leah, who wasn't as appealing to Jacob. And so Jacob comes to Laban and says, I want to marry your daughter. And Laban says, you remember what he said? You know the story? He says, okay, fine. Here's what you got to do. Seven years, hard labor, get it done. But he worked seven years, and those years were to him like a day. It's a love story. Quick. Seven years, no big deal. Worked them all. And then comes the night. Finally, he's going to get what he's worked so hard for. And I don't know if Jacob had too much to drink, or if he needed some little glasses, or if it was really dark. But Laban pulls a fast one on him, and at the last minute says, Rachel, come here. Leah, hop in. Jacob wakes up the next morning. Whoa! You're not the one I thought I married. It was Leah. I know, I don't want to say it, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, she was. And this is, this is a hard story. I don't want to make too light of it, but I think there's like humor here, and yet there's also real reality here. Like, this is the mess of family life, you know? This is the mess of living in bodies. Some of us live in bodies that other people may find more attractive than others do, right? Hopefully, we all find at least one person who wants to look at us. If we don't, hey, God does. You know, all these different kinds of things. I don't know if this is an appropriate way to put it. But, I mean, you said it. Leah's the ugly sister. She is. It's almost like a trope. So Leah, though, marries Jacob, and then um, Jacob's like, hey, man, that's not what I said I wanted. Now, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he had a fine relationship with Leah. I don't know that he, just because he didn't want to marry her doesn't mean he didn't like her, you know what I mean? But he didn't want to marry her, and he, and he, and he did. So he's like, all right, man, like, I, know, I want to marry Rachel. And so he says, okay, cool, you can marry Rachel. Now here's the deal. Like, it's our custom for the older to marry later. Maybe I didn't mention that. I don't know. Maybe I forgot to say that. But like, that's just how we do things here. Older sister gets married first. So, sorry. It's in the fine print. So he says, you can marry Rachel too. Seven more years. So then he marries Rachel. He doesn't have to wait seven years. He marries her immediately. He marries both of them. And then seven more years pass. And so he finds himself a wives. <laughs> and then they have some kids. I want to read this part because it reminds me of... Well, it just reminds me of real life sometimes. What I really want to say is it reminds me of the Royal Tenenbaums, but I don't know if you'll get that. Or if you do, I don't know if I should. But nonetheless, Jacob's children. What do I want to read? I think, yeah, starting in verse 31 of chapter 29. um, I can go ahead and give you the uh, lines to fill in, and then you'll see how it comes out in the stories. The truth here, now that we're going to pull out of this, is that family is good but broken. Family is a good gift. It's a great gift, but it's broken. Uh, mommies, daddies, aunts, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, uh, daughters, sons. It's, it's good, it's broken. So here's what happens with the children after he marries the two of them. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. He's watching out for her. I mean this. I hope we weren't making too much light of her. Some of you may feel like you've been her in a certain season of your life, whether it was literally or figuratively, or maybe you always feel like you're her. Either way, God's looking out for her. So he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. And this is the point at which it just gets sad. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. 
She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. She learns that even if Jacob never gives her the love that she wants, she has the love that she needs. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build my family through her. We've seen this before. You remember, huh? It didn't work out well then. Surprise, surprise, it's not going to here either. Yet anything can be redeemed. Verse 4. Sorry, off track. Verse 4. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. All these names relate to, the Hebrew words relate to the things they're saying, by the way. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Apparently mandrakes were like a, um, what's the word? Aphrodisiac, yeah. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Do y'all watch soap operas? I don't want you to answer that question. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Genesis is, we should call the old and the restless. You know what I mean? (laughs) So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dina. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Well, this is a mess, as you can see. So I don't think it's too hard of a jump to make the point that family is good but broken. It is good. Working seven years for a person you love isn't that big of a deal. Having children is a good thing, but it's broken. Because sometimes deceit enters in. Sometimes one person is treated in a way that is not what they should be treated. Sometimes we use children for all sorts of things that are not what children are to be used for. So let's run down the list here. Family's good but broken. How about extended family? Laban was uh, Jacob's uncle. I mean, it's great to have a place to crash, but it's not great to be taken advantage of. And I mean, what can you say after all? It's family. Now, I'm in a situation, and she's not only in the room, but I'd say this even if she wasn't. My mother-in-law lives with us. It's working well. But uh, yeah, no doubt. But whenever we said to our extended families, it's my my mother-in-law, so whenever they said to their families, we're thinking about moving in, same house. What do you think they all said? Are you sure? (laughs) Same thing we all say when family wants to move in together because we know it can turn ugly. Great to have a place to crash, but man, family's good but broken. 
How about marriage? It's a good thing. It's a desirable thing. If this is, if you're a called to single or single for a season, singleness too is a wonderful gift. We've talked about that before. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it again. Maybe we'll talk about it with Joseph. He used his years of singleness well. Um, but here we see that marriage is a good thing, a desirable thing. Seven years, no big deal. But uh, seeing it in its present form, it's like looking at a beautiful face in a shattered mirror. It just looks a little funky. Because in this world it is. Children are good gifts from God, desirable for both fathers and mothers. But here you see children just being used. As sad as I am for Leah in this story, man, I'm even, I'm even sadder for the, just used for the children, just used. Used to make a spouse like them, used to compete with a sister, used as a means for self-fulfillment. Now, we may not do the same things, but we do similar things to our kids. We use them to try to make ourselves feel good about our place in the world. Sometimes we discipline our kids because it's the best thing for them. But let's be honest. And I know some of your kids are older, but sometimes we discipline our kids because we look bad when our kids disobey. Sometimes, right? Sometimes we place pressure on our kids to excel, not because they love the sport or the academic exercise of the instrument, but because we need, to, we need to see that victory. We need that trophy, that blue ribbon, whatever it may be. Children are used. So the truth that we see here is family is good but broken. Four truths from the first part of Jacob's life. First one, God weaves our choices into a sovereign plan. He integrates our freely chosen decisions. Second one, our holiness matters. Third one, God is always here, wherever we are. All that he is here. And fourth one, families are good but broken. And last thought, then we'll be done. Like the rest of scripture, we see these truths in their clearest form when we look at the cross. At the cross, we find God's sovereign presence. This is his plan come to fruition. Emmanuel, God on earth, we see his sovereign presence manifested for the saving of unholy, broken, corrupt people. The cross and the resurrection are why we can say anything can be redeemed. And it's not just a wish. It's a hope and there's a difference. And at the cross, not only do we see God's sovereign presence manifested for people who are messed up, but we also see here that we find power to live holy lives and redeem God's good gifts that have been corrupted by sin. We see some important important truths in Jacob's story. Let me pray once more that the Holy Spirit impresses upon us what we need to hear. Father God, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. Uh, Maybe not a lot of chapters per se, but a lot of truth. So help us as we leave this place to remember where we started with a picture of your son coming into our room and talking to us about what's going on in our lives. And help us to imagine that conversation well and respond faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.